Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. A fly just flew in, literally just dive-bombed my coffee uh, like a second before the show began. And it appears to have killed him, but now there's a fly sitting. These are the first world problems we get on the Andrew Lawton show. I just made, I hadn't even taken a sip of that thing yet. All right, so let me know in the comments. Do I just pull the fly out and drink the coffee? Or do I dump the coffee altogether? Or I guess uh, there's a third option, which is do I... Uh, continue to drink the coffee and like let it ste- let the the fly really steep it. That's a that's a big ass fly in there too. All right, uh, yeah, I, I'm I, I got to move it. I'm going to accidentally drink from the coffee, and you're all going to be repulsed by me. So I'm just going to like move it way over there. I needed that to get through the show. If I just like keel over by one fifteen, that's why. It's because the fly uh, was uh, so rude as to uh, sully my Americano. I am a man of the people, though, so welcome to the Andrew Lawton Show. Uh, we call that a cold open in the business, although in this particular case, it is a hot open, uh, especially for that fly. May he rest in pieces. Uh, nevertheless, this is Thursday, January 25th, 2023. You are tuned into Canada's most irreverent talk show. Was that a sufficiently irreverent opening to the program here? I'm uh, going to be talking a little bit later on about Alberta Premier Danielle Smith taking the stage with Tucker Carlson in Alberta, where he started his efforts to liberate Canada. Has Canada been sufficiently liberated after what happened 24 hours ago? We'll find out, I guess. But also talking later on about the fallout from the federal court's ruling on the Emergencies Act, finding that Justin Trudeau was not only not justified in invoking the Emergencies Act, but that the way he did it violated Canadians' constitutional rights. We've been covering this all week. We will continue as the show progresses. But I I wanted to actually start off with a bit of like inside politics, uh, inside baseball here for Canadian politics, because there is, in a majority government, a ton of members of parliament you've never heard of before. In a minority government, not as many, but there are still some that are backbenchers in the governing party, where even someone like me who follows politics a lot, I'll hear their name and I'll be like, I have no idea. It could have been like my, you know, doctor or something. Like I have no idea who these people are. And this is the the case with the liberals. You've got a few people that they only kind of make news when they do something notable. And for most liberal backbench members of parliament, they will never do anything notable in their lives. But there was one in particular that stood up and took a principled stand not that long ago when the conservatives were taking aim at yet another increase to the federal carbon tax. Now, uh, Ken McDonald is a member of parliament in Avalon, which is in Newfoundland. And Ken McDonald uh, decided to vote in support of a conservative motion that was calling on the liberals to, I forget the exact wording of it, but it was basically taking aim at the liberals' increase to the carbon tax. The liberals, you may recall, had given an exemption that applied only to Atlantic Canadians uh, or Not spelled out that way, but that was the implication of it because they were exempting home heating oil, which is used predominantly by people in Atlantic Canada. Now, Ken McDonald voted in favor of giving a carbon tax break to Canadians. This was how he defended it in an interview later on. So tell us why you decided to vote against your your own government. uh, Same reason as I did it the first time. It was that I felt that uh, this is not the time to be making 
things more expensive in our communities and in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, I think, I've said before, I do believe in climate change and that we need to do something about it, but not to increase prices at this time. I just think it's a wrong time to bring in those policies. The Conservatives gave you a standing ovation yesterday. I'm wondering if you're worried at all about the optics and you know what your colleagues said to you afterwards. No, nobody had anything to say, actually. Was, they did the same thing, I think, the first time I did it. And they did it again yesterday, but I guess they just wanted to recognize the fact to say thank you for standing up on, uh, on our side of the house for, for a change. Has your government given you any guarantee that they will increase the rebates for rural Canadians? No, my understanding, they are looking at it. Whether it will come to fruition or not, I don't know. And uh, I, part of the reason why I did this was to also support Premier Fury. He's asking for the same thing, for it to be stalled and I stand with him for that for the constituents that I represent. So Ken McDonald gives a very reasoned answer there. The Conservatives, of course, did give him a standing ovation for backing their motion. That doesn't make him a Conservative. It just makes him a responsible Canadian and a respectful representative of his constituents by effectively saying, yeah, I don't want these people saddled with the carbon tax. Now, when the Liberals gave that exemption to Atlantic Canada, that seemed to be all it took to get uh, Mr. McDonald there to just pipe down, shut up and fall in line because he looked after his constituents it didn't actually matter about the rest of Canadians when all was said and done. So why am I talking about Ken McDonald again? Well, this week, Ken McDonald showed once again a little glimmer of independence. He stood up and said that Justin Trudeau should face a leadership review. He says every leader, every party has a best before date. Our best before date is here. Now, this is actually a very important thing. Justin Trudeau has had a very ironclad grip on his caucus. There has been very little dissent. Joel Lightbound, who was that Quebec MP that criticized the Liberal government's pandemic policies, he was one example of a guy who had a little bit of independence, but we haven't heard from Joel Lightbound in quite a while. So he effectively fell in line. So Ken McDonald wasn't calling on Justin Trudeau to step down. But he did an interview and he said the party should have a leadership review that allows for members to permit rivals for the leadership to come forward. So he was saying that Justin Trudeau, if he's going to stay on, should have to fight for it. He said, as a party, let's clear the air. And if people are still intent on having the leader we have now, fine. But let's at least give people the opportunity to have their say in what they think the direction the party is going. I decided not to do it with the accent. I feel that would have been offensive to some of the people in Newfoundland. I may I may slip into the accent later. We'll see. But uh, again, maybe there's another poll question for you. Should Andrew do his most offensive Newfie accent? But uh, never. I, I will say, I so years ago, I was on MasterChef Canada, which was a, a reality cooking show. And I was eliminated in the first episode in a montage. So if you blinked, you missed me. But when we were filming, there were uh, two people from Newfoundland on the show who like the drunker they got, the heavier the Newfie accent got. And at the end of it, they, it was only they could understand each other. And we were all just looking like, I think what they said was a joke. I, I didn't hear the punchline or the setup, but anyway, love Newfoundland. Uh, spent uh, only a few hours there, but it is a, an absolutely lovely place. Ken McDonald does what he does best. He's trying to be independent. He says we should have a leadership review. Well, that story came out yesterday. Let's fast forward to the headline today. I know, so heartbreaking. 
Ken McDonald walks back his comments that liberals need a leadership review. So what Ken McDonald is now saying is that Justin Trudeau is a great campaigner which is as backhanded a compliment as you can give someone. That's like watching some terrible movie and saying that, uh, well, I, I think the lighting was good. Uh, like you're trying to find like the weirdest, strangest compliment that you can think of to offer. And it's a bit of a weird one. But he says in a statement, so the statement is what you send out when you don't want to go before the press again because you know you're going to say the wrong thing again. He said, the intent of my recent public comments was not to personally call for a leadership review, and I am not calling for one now. Uh, and then he, of course, goes on to say Justin Trudeau is a great campaigner. He says, the government now of today is getting to be an old government. Those were his words in the interview. But in the statement, it's no, 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 I'm not saying anything of the sort. I, so I suspect what happened is uh, Ken McDonald was at home in Avalon minding his own business. He got a knock at the door, and then he opened the door, and this was the group that awaited him. I think he got like the Lebronos mob squad just at his front door, uh, desperately uh, telling him to get into uh, compliance there. And <laughs> so then what happened is uh, we had, uh, of course, Ken McDonald uh, do an about face in less than 24 hours and say, no, 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 no. I'm not calling for a leadership review at all. Never. No, no, no. I died by the tonight. No, sorry. I said I wouldn't do it. Uh, so <laughs> here's what's happening. Anytime some liberal dares to show just the slightest bit of independence, they get the hook, they get pulled off stage, the music plays, the microphone goes down, and they are going to be never heard from again. Like he, He's going to show up, uh, you know, ball gagged and bruised when the House of Commons resumes in just a few days' time because uh, Ken McDonald uh, will never make that mistake again of saying what he thinks. And look, I, I feel for him, the Liberals deserve a great deal of credit. The only party I can think of that has had as good a job, as good a track record as Trudeau and the Liberals of keeping caucus dissent in check would be Doug Ford and the Progressive Conservatives in Ontario. Anytime someone in the PC caucus of Ontario has dared to be independent, they have been like kicked out of caucus. It happened to Randy Hillier and Belinda Carajalios and Roman Babber. And then you fast forward to 2022 and what do you get? No independent MPPs. The only people that want to be independent end up resigning or retiring from office. So here's what's happening. We have the liberals who are very much long in the tooth. The poll numbers are in absolute decline. They are in free fall. Not a single person, not a single person I have spoken to, and I have many people that I know in my life, believe it or not, who voted for Justin Trudeau, at least in one of the past three elections, oftentimes uh, two of them. And not a single one of those people that I've spoken to has said they will vote for Justin Trudeau again. Now, some of these people are not fans of Pierre Polyev. Maybe they'll stay home. Maybe they'll vote NDP. Maybe they'll just, you know, flee Canada altogether. But this is an incredibly important point that we all need to be aware of here, which is that uh, the call has to come from within if you want anything to change before the next election. The NDP is not gonna pull the plug. Jagmeet Singh wants his pension. The Conservatives cannot pull the government down without getting the NDP on board. The Bloc Québécois are in a similar boat. So if Justin Trudeau is to be gone before 2025, the call needs to come from within the House. And the number of people in that caucus that cannot put their long-term interests front and center is actually shocking because if you're a liberal member of parliament in, you know, let's say the GTA, 
you're in Vancouver, you're in Atlantic Canada, you are not going to have a job in two years if the party continues on the path it's on. So either these people are just complete and utter cowards, they're complete and utter morons because they can't actually see the writing on the wall here, or they just don't care if they go down with the ship. And, and to be honest, I think there's some truth to that idea that a lot of these people genuinely do not know that things are as bad as they are. I mean, this is the sunny ways government, but I think a lot of liberal members of parliament, believe it or not, are just so uh, enamored with Justin Trudeau themselves, they don't realize just how unpopular he is. I, I won't play it for you because it's, you've, if you've seen it before, but the liberals recirculated Pierre Polyev's Apple video and the text accompanying it was like about Donald Trump winning New Hampshire. Like it was a bizarre thing. And I'm like, you, you don't realize Polyev comes out looking pretty good in this exchange, but all they can do is be like, ah, Trump. Like that's the only, the liberal platform is actually just going to be a picture of Donald Trump and a picture of Polyev. And then like 19 pages of uh, just like, you know, Mad Libs or, you know, picture books and crosswords or whatever. Like they don't even need a platform in their view. They can just say Polyev is Trump and that's going to be enough for them. Nevertheless, the big news of the week has not been the flip-flop of Ken McDonald, but it's been the federal court's uh, trump card, if you will, on the federal government declaring that the use of the Emergencies Act was unlawful. It did not comply with the Emergencies Act, and the measures employed did not comply with the Canadian Constitution. We've talked a lot about what this means in terms of, of the legal arguments that are being put forward. We spoke a bit yesterday on the longer term implications of this and, and what it'll mean if it goes to the Federal Court of Appeal and most likely beyond that to the Supreme Court. But I, I wanted to delve into this in a bit more detail because there have been a lot of questions. And uh, one big one is how this has been such a divergence from a lot of the other case law on constitutional freedoms in the last few years, which have been, as I've said on the show, very deferential to the government and not particularly mindful of protecting people's freedoms. James Manson is the Director of Legal Services with the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms and joins me now. James, it's good to talk to you. And I, I should say to my audience, uh, by way of disclosure, I sit on the board of the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, but uh, that has no bearing on this interview. And this is not to be taken, James, as a performance review by your board. Uh, <laughs> Thanks yeah, very much, Andrew. You showed up on time, so you're getting a passing grade so far. But uh, uh, welcome. Let's start there. I mean, we've seen a lot of dismal rulings on constitutional freedoms in the last several years, on COVID-era cases, on free speech cases. Why did this one, in your view, go the other way? Like, where was the judge going with this that we haven't seen many of his colleagues go? That's an excellent question, Andrew. And, you know, I have been struggling with the answer to that question for a couple of years, probably like you, probably like a lot of the viewers and listeners. Why is it that these courts have been so unwilling to, um, you know, even consider the Charter of Rights or consider these these very important issues dealing with uh, with all the COVID stuff. Why were they so unwilling to do that? And yet, a couple of days ago, Justice Mosley comes right through and gives us that win that we were looking for so desperately. Why, why was that the case? And I think part of it may be legal. There may be a legal answer to part of that. There also may be a psychological answer to part of that. Now, I'm not a psychologist, of course, but I think that that back in, in those days, a couple, two, three, four years ago, we all remember the, the, the fear 
right, that was going on in our society. There was mm -hmm. a lot of it going on. And I mean, I think maybe some of us felt it to a greater or lesser degree. But I think a lot of people in society were very, very afraid. And I think that that fear extended throughout society, which would include government, the, the judiciary, a lot of people in positions of authority. And I think a lot of this may have come from the reticence, the fear to say, I can't take a position on this. I can't hear this. I'm too afraid of getting COVID and getting sick and potentially dying or, you know, all of the horrible things that we were talking about back a few years ago. I think a lot of that may have been partly what was responsible. And so the reason I say that, Andrew, is because now we're three years later. We're four mm -hmm. years later. We're not quite so f worried anymore about COVID. Now COVID is a bit of a punchline. I don't mean to be that glib about it, but people say, oh, I got COVID over the weekend and it sucked and I had to stay home and no big deal. That's where we are now with COVID, right? So I think partly there's a psychological explanation. But the other explanation, Andrew, is more in my bailiwick, which is legal. Mm -hmm. And so I think maybe the COVID stuff was... Um, much more scientifically driven it was much more about you know whether there is a scientific explanation for vaccines or whether or not staying at home is is the right thing to do medically or whatever and there's all these scientific expert reports flying around for all that stuff and the courts were really reticent to get involved in all of that because of course expert opinions expert evidence in the courts it's always very very tricky and in this particular case we weren't really talking so much about any of the stuff that was really COVID, really hardcore COVID stuff. It was a totally different question, which was about the Emergencies Act, which is a very, very, um, you know, complicated issue, but it's very legal. It's very constitutional. It's much more, it's something that, that a judge or a court would have much easier time grappling with yeah. in the abstract than covid science medicine all that stuff and i mean don't get me wrong andrew i totally um think that the courts should have gone there anyway with all the science mm -hmm. they totally should have but that's that ship has already sailed of course yeah i mean to, to find a judge who is an expert in science and, and medicine is, is very very difficult it's incredibly rare so judges have to be deferential to the the experts and when the government puts out you know all of these people in lab coats it's very easy to say well okay they're, they're yeah that must be science and your your point about the legal aspects I think is incredibly important. Now I'm not a lawyer. I kind of play one on TV sometimes by, uh, because I have studied these cases and covered them. And I, I have people uh, like yourself, whose expertise I get to claim credit for in later shows when I repeat it back to my audience. But the emergencies act is a very well written piece of legislation, I think in terms of spelling out the test. And, and I actually found it very easy to go kind of point by point through all of the premises and caveats that it gives. Uh, and try to line that up with the government's argument. And to be honest, there was not a lot of subjectivity in the test for a national emergency, in the test for a threat to the security of Canada. The only time you got into a pretty ambiguous territory was when it talks about cabinet has to have a reasonable belief because they're carving in a, a bit of subjectivity there. But that was where I thought Justice Mosley's decision 
was much stronger than uh, Commissioner Rouleau's decision in the Public Order Emergency Commission because he was he was really accepting the government's very muddied and muddled interpretation of that legal test, whereas Justice Mosley was much stricter and more literal with it, which is, I think, how it was intended. I agree. I totally agree. I, I can't improve upon your comments, Andrew. I mean, I mean, I think that, um, I mean, we're talking about two different animals, obviously, the, mm -hmm. the Public Order Commission and then this. And I think the listeners and viewers know all about what those two different animals are designed to achieve. One may be totally different than the other. One is subject to appeal and one is subject to much more rigorous cross-examinations and evidentiary requirements and the other one is not, etc. All that stuff. But I think really what every reasonable observer needs to... Um, I think admit at the end of the day is that this decision from 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 the federal court is much more authoritative shall we say with respect to the actual you know text of the of the legislation the actual intent of the parliament in 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 bringing it into effect i mean remembering this all came out andrew from the war measures act back mm -hmm. in 1970 and the whole debacle of the flq crisis basically parliament got together and said we have to change this it has to be much harder to invoke these very, very stringent, very, very um, serious powers. And this is what they came up with, right? And so to say that the government suggested or, or maybe Justice Rouleau acquiesced in, uh, in, uh, in, to suggest that it should be easy or that it should somehow fall to the executive, to cabinet, to just be able to do this whenever it basically wants to is crazy in my view it is it is it is totally totally anathema to what parliament did in in you know enacting this brand new piece of legislation a few years 50 years ago right yeah and i wanted to ask a little bit about the the mechanics of the next step we know the federal government is going to be appealing this which means it will likely go to the federal court of appeal I, i've heard several lawyers say that the federal court of appeal is almost certainly going to to take this up given the circumstances, but I, I'm curious, and, and I don't know if you can actually drill this down into, into a statistical analysis, but how commonly are uh, trial court decisions from the federal court overturned by the federal court of appeal, or is it really a toss up? Yeah, I don't have that statistic. You could probably, f I'm not sure if you could find it if you looked. I can tell you though that um, in this particular case, um, first of all, just so that everybody's clear, it's not a question of whether they will take it up. They have to take it up. Mm -hmm. If the Federal Court of Appeal gets a notice of appeal from the government, they, they have to do the appeal because the government and, and, and you know anybody on our side also would have the right to an appeal in this case. The second appeal, which in this case would be to the Supreme Court of Canada, that one would need to be done by permission. You would have to get what they call okay. leave to appeal. So anyway, we're in the first step. This is this is a um, this is an appeal as of right, which means that you can you can appeal it. There will be an appeal. Now the question becomes, what happens on the appeal? You know, there's different tests and different factors and different things that happen on an appeal, based on the type of of proceeding we're talking about. Okay, so this isn't a trial with a jury, for example. This is this was what we call a judicial review. I don't need to bore everybody with ex with exactly what that means. It's a bit different than just a regular case. 
But basically, when you go on appeal from this decision, um, uh, from a judicial review, the standard of review, which is what we used to say, what does the court of appeal do? What is their function? What are they looking for? Sometimes the, the appeal court has got a very narrow function. They're only looking for some place where the judge made a mistake, screwed up, did something really, really wrong. In other cases, like this one, Basically, it's kind of a rehearing. It's kind of a it's kind of a a do over. Not entirely a do over, but kind of a kind of a do over. Which is to say that all the the what the what the appeal court has to do is take a look at the lower court judge's reasons and determine if they basically applied the right standards of review to the to the declaration and whether or not they, they, they applied it all properly. Now that's all very formal language to say it's kind of a do-over. So we're gonna have to see how much of a do-over we're talking about here. Are we gonna literally have 11,000 pages of, of the record put before the Court of Appeal? Are we gonna have a you know multi-day hearing in the Court of Appeal? Is it gonna take months to get there while everybody prepares their briefs again a second time? I don't know as I sit here. Um, I hope not, because I don't want to have a, a totally, um, uh, you know, second kick at the can on the, on, on, on the part of the government. My, 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 my thinking, my hope anyway, is that this is going to be a fairly, fairly tailored process. But nonetheless, it's possible that we get into everything all over again, that we get into the mootness again. It's possible that we get into the national emergency finding again. It's possible that we get into the uh, national security threat finding. It's possible that we get into the Charter of Rights again, because, of course, the Section 2 and Section 8 violations of the, you know, with those regulations, mm -hmm. those horrible regulations, freezing people's bank accounts. Yes. Um, it's possible that we have to revisit all of that. And given the way the government is going these days, uh, that they seem to be completely uh, unable to um, recognize and respect the rule of law. I'm sorry to be to be so spicy when I say that, but it it appears like I I honestly can't believe Andrew that a government would consider appealing a decision like this. Well, yeah, so I mean, I can't believe they would have done the first thing, which was freezing believe. the bank accounts well, right fair, from the get go. So that's a fair point. I mean, their only their only real recourse is to just keep digging in and hope that eventually they're yeah. going to get some seal of approval from from a court, I guess. Well, and as you said in your last segment, I mean, we're not going to get help from Mr. Singh. So, yeah, it's basically it's basically 2025 or bust, right? For, yeah. For yeah. Very, very well said. James Manson is the director of legal services with the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. Thank you so much, James. Thanks, Andrew. Cheers. All right, thanks. Here I was thinking on the show, we would have all of these like great, insightful and in-depth comments about uh, Ken McDonald and Avalon, about Justin Trudeau and Jugmeet Singh, about the Constitution of Canada. No, everyone's commenting on the damn fly. So if you want an update on Flygate, I, I plucked it out of the coffee. His uh, lifeless, limp, soggy corpse is sitting on my coaster. And actually, oh, sorry, no, that is, uh, those are Justin Trudeau's poll numbers. Uh, sorry, I thought it was the fly. But uh, then we also had uh, Richard Peters says, man up and drink the coffee. Uh, Sean is just worried about the Fly's family. Sean is a, a bit of a closet hippie here. 
And uh, Angry Canadian, see, this is what I was concerned about. Angry Canadian on YouTube, uh, which was probably many of you uh, fit that name, says, it's courtesy of Klaus Schwab. Yeah, this is like, I spent too long in Davos, and now the bugs are just like dive-bombing themselves into my drink. So uh, this is like Klaus Schwab's, you will, you will eat the bugs. He just like shipped it over, and the fly landed uh, perfectly. So I don't, do I, do I, I don't know. I'm, I don't know. Uh, we'll see. Maybe by the end of the episode. I'm, I'm still awake, though. Uh, Sean says the fly was supporting three children, so... Well, unfortunately, you can just go on a CERB like everyone else there fly, and hopefully you'll be looked after. All right, the big news yesterday in Alberta was Tucker Carlson making good on his vow to liberate the country. That's not uh, just my wording here. He used that himself in a phone call to the prime minister. Thank you for your call. You have reached the media line. For all urgent requests, please send your request by email. Yes, hi. I, I couldn't understand the French part, but it's Tucker Carlson calling from the United States. And I'd be grateful if you pass a message on to the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. We are coming to liberate Canada. We are coming to liberate Canada. And we'll be there soon. Merci. And so he did. I think there were a combined like 15,000 people out at his two events yesterday, one in Calgary and then one in Edmonton in the evening. He had a star-studded panel there, Conrad Black and W. Brett Wilson and the, uh, of course, Jordan Peterson, who is a late addition, and Alberta Premier Danielle Smith. Now, uh, we'll get to Danielle Smith in a moment. I want to show, she tweeted this picture, which seems to just like trigger so many people here. She says, free speech means you don't just have to talk to the mainstream media. Finished up in Calgary, off to Edmonton next. Now, I, I liked the photo. I thought there was a little something missing from it. I, there was a je ne sais quoi that was missing from it. So I, I tried my own hand at fixing the photo and came up with this. Yeah, I think that right there is uh, the real photo. This is a Canadian heritage moment. Uh, from left to right, there is Jordan Peterson, Premier Danielle Smith, Tucker Carlson, and Baron Black of Cross Harbor. Not, just to be technical here, he should never be called Lord Conrad Black. It is Conrad Lord Black, or just Lord Black, or just Conrad Black. But uh, that's a, he's, he's often erroneously referred to as Lord Conrad Black, which is just not the proper styling. But anyway, uh, I see this is what happens when you watch too much Downton Abbey. But uh, all of that uh, notwithstanding, there was one more addition to the photo that I thought was even better than that. And I saw this one this morning. Let's put up this one. Oh, right there, we've got uh, Baron Black of Cross Harbor, we've got Tucker Carlson, and then we've got uh, Lady Rachel of Emanuel. Rachel Emanuel, who is the host of the Alberta Roundup on True North and, and graced the stage last night and joins us now gracing our stage here. Rachel, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming back on the show. Happy to be here as always. So, I mean, Danielle Smith got a lot of heat when she first announced she would be participating in this. And her answer, I think, has been pretty consistent, which is, yeah, I do interviews all the time. That doesn't mean I, I disagree or agree with whatever's in them. But have we seen like those heads exploding since she took the stage more than they were initially? People are pretty upset. I mean, of course, the radical left mainstream media had their articles coming out. I think Danielle put it very well when she joined the stage in Calgary yesterday. She said, look. 
just because I'm here doesn't mean I agree with everything that's being said by my colleagues on the stage. Of course, it's ridiculous that she would even have to say that, but that's just really where we are in the times today. There's not a lot of free and open debate anymore. That's not welcome, but she did make that clarification whether or not the media will actually take that call is up to them. Yeah, I know that uh, today she did a, an appearance. She was announcing something or other and was already facing like yet again another question from it. Let's uh, roll that clip. I do want to ask about your attendance at both of Tucker Carlson's events yesterday. This is somebody who has been accused of defending white supremacy, spreading misinformation about the war in Ukraine, as well as making disparaging remarks about women. So why did you believe that this is someone that you should be giving time and attention to? Well, I, I t take a wide range of media requests. I've done, I'm told by my staff, 96 individual media events uh, or uh, interviews since I got reelected, 24 press conferences. And I don't require, I don't do a screening test to make sure that every person that interviews me matches 100% of what I believe. And I don't expect that I'm, that they're going to, that, 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 that would be an appropriate thing to do. So I take a wide range of interviews from CBC all the way through to alternative media, because my job is to get our message out about Alberta. And I told everyone that I wanted to make sure that somebody who has a very loud voice in America knew that we were a partner in being able to provide energy security and energy affordability. And I got that message out. So a bit of a glimpse from uh, Premier Smith there on what that message was. Uh, but generally speaking, beyond that, what did she use that opportunity to discuss? I mean, she actually phrased it very well. I think that's exactly why she agreed to do these events on stage is because she does want to get Alberta's message out. And that is one of, we are the place that has the cleanest energy supply and the rest of the world should be coming to Alberta for our energy supply. And also that Ottawa is continuing to kibosh these efforts. And if they continue to kibosh our efforts to include energy, to, to reduce energy supply, we're actually going to run into big issues in the province of Alberta, where tens of thousands of people are moving from all over the country for the Alberta advantage, and operators are unwilling to increase their baseload power out of fear that they will come into conflict with Ottawa's 2035 regulations. And now we're running into serious issues where we're facing potential power outages like a couple of weeks ago when we had that cold snap and people are worried if they're going to be able to have power or whether there's going to be rolling brownouts and blackouts throughout the province. So she delivered that message very clearly yesterday. And honestly, it's something that we also saw Jason Kenney about, you know, for all his flaws, when I covered his government, he did attend a Senate committee in the U.S. And he spoke mm -hmm. about that same message. Alberta has the cleanest energy on earth and the rest of the world should be getting our, their energy from here, no matter what the federal government says. Yeah, and I, I understand from the clip circulating, she was also like trying to introduce the idea of Stephen Gilbo to Tucker Carlson and like enlist his help in the fight against Stephen Gilbo. What was that all about? That was definitely one of the best parts of the day. We all know Daniel Smith does not like Stephen Gilbo. She actually can't stand him. She said, she said on multiple occasions she can't work with him. And she said to Tucker yesterday, you know, I think you should put Stephen Gilbo in your crosshairs. And later on, she said, I'm trying to get him fired and I could use your help with that. I thought that was absolutely hilarious. One of the best lines from the day, another really good one, was when Tucker Carlson, he seems to really dislike Christia Freeland. He apparently knew her when she was a journalist. And he says, this lady is not bright at all. And he actually referred to her as a midget at one point and that got quite a few laughs from the crowd one of the fan favorites for sure yeah but i i saw that clip he also said she had like the self-esteem that you could like hide under in the event of a nuclear attack or whatever like she's very self-assured which is a i guess a compliment in a, in a roundabout way uh i think we have a clip of the uh, gilbo line you were just talking about let's roll that 
don't know if you know much about Stephen Gibo. I don't know if I've ever heard but you. But I'm, I'm wanting to learn less, just by your description. <laughs> well, the thing I find so offensive, I mean, you talk about uh, uh, the disrespect to our province. This is a guy who is an environmental advocate. He's best known for scaling the CN Tower in opposition of fossil fuels when he was working as an environmental advocate. But he also scaled the house of our premier. So he's a rock climber, yeah. well, not an engineer. He's a, maybe he'd be better at that. But imagine that. Imagine somebody going and taking a criminal offense, going onto the roof of a premier, and then they make that person in charge of trying to dictate to us how to pull our resources out of the ground, how to manage our natural resources, how to, how to manage our electricity grid. That's what Justin Trudeau has done. So I'm trying to get him fired, and I would love your help on that. I mean, what she said there entirely consistent with what she and uh, Minister Rebecca Schultz have, have said about Gilbo at, at many other uh, occasions and affairs. And I find it interesting that the, the rhetoric on social media appears to be trying to like put on her things he said at other points, either in his career or even at other points on stage, instead of like, does anyone take issue with what she herself said at this event in front of a crowd of, I think a combined crowd of like 15,000. And I don't know, I, I'm not aware so far, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, Rachel, of any controversy stemming from anything she said. Of course there isn't, but that's not what media is anymore. It's trying to associate with you with people that are perceived to be controversial and trying to paint those people as controversial as possible by taking clips out of context or saying that things are racist just because you're simply pointing to the statistics of something or saying that mass immigration is a bad thing for our countries and that it's actually making it so that our healthcare systems are failing and that we don't have enough houses in our country and all these types of things. And that's really all that media is. And it's one of the reasons why... I just don't watch it anymore. I don't pay attention to what the legacy media does other than to occasionally point out major mistakes they've made because it's useless and it's just untrue. So one thing that I, I think will be interesting here is that, and I, let me back up. I'm sure there were many people on Danielle Smith's staff. In fact, I've heard whisperings of it. They didn't love that she was doing this. And uh, let's face it, there are things that I disagree with from with Tucker Carlson on a lot of foreign policy stuff as well as elsewhere. But uh, it seemed to be a win for her. I mean, she spoke to a crowd that uh, might not even be connected to partisan politics because they were drawn there by an American speaker. And I think in that sense, she was doing something that probably will help her long term. I mean, there was one guy, I think it was Bruce Anderson, the pollster, who said, oh, this is going to like hurt her in the polls in the next election, which I'm like, yeah, good luck with that. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that this event actually boded very well for her. And I think something we've seen the premier really improve on, obviously, let's remember, she took a break from politics and she was a talk show host. And as a talk show host, you, know, you discuss controversial ideas and you sort of say your thoughts on things. And during the election, you know, the NDP rolled their clips of Danielle Smith saying all these talking about ideas and they tried to paint it as some really controversial and crazy lady for simply wanting open and fair discussion. And so I think we've seen that be a bit of an issue for her in the early days of her politics. And even still, she had that willingness early on to continue that discussion. And I think that she's really kind of coming into her own as a politician and she's really learned to finally craft and tune her message. And so I don't notice that we're seeing those types of blips at events that she attends as often anymore because she's just as really focused. And I think she stays really on point and on message. And I think she did that yesterday. So I agree that this will really bode well for her in the long run. All right. Well, we look forward. Are you going to be doing any of this on your show this weekend? Of course. So you guys can All tune right. in on Saturday for that.
So keep an eye out for the Alberta roundup. I, I kind of assume, I hoped, because that would have been a really anticlimactic end of the interview if you said, no, we're doing something else. So uh, that'll be on Alberta roundup this weekend. Rachel Emanuel, as always, keeping us connected with what's happening in my, I don't want to say my favorite province in Canada. but Your it's, favorite province. It's yeah, my favorite province in Canada. All right. Thank you so much, Rachel. We'll talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. All right. That Sean says, Sean, you're from Toronto. You don't get to how dare you me on that. Sean is like now defending the honor of Toronto when I say that I love Alberta. Every time I go out to Alberta, uh, there were, I, there name one good thing about Ontario, Sean. See, he can't do it. He says Niagara Falls. You don't even live in Niagara Falls. And I, don't, I don't, couldn't even tell you the last time I went to Niagara Falls. I, I should say, I grew up in Ontario. I, I love Ontario for the familiarity of it. Uh, I can't even say the weather is all that much better because I live in the middle of the Great Lakes. We get like ice in our faces. You just end up like uh, you're basically a human icicle. You're Jack Frost when you walk down the street in the winter. And again, here the fly, I've never, a fly has never dive bombed my coffee in Alberta. Uh, you may get a cougar attack in a parking lot of a Tim Hortons, but you're never going to get a fly attacking your coffee. So uh, now, now this is like my whole chat is everyone's turning on me, all the Ontarians. I mean, I'm an Ontarian. I'm one of you. All right. All of that notwithstanding, we will uh, have that fight on our show. We'll do Alberta versus Ontario. If you're one of the other provinces, I'm sorry, you have to find your own fights. But uh, that does it for us for today. We've got something very special planned next week, which I, I want to give you a, a bit of a glimpse of now. So my friend and colleague Mark Stein has been on trial for the last two weeks in Washington, D.C., in a, it's again, a case 12 years in the making. He was sued for defamation by Michael Mann, who is a big climate Scientologist, or not climate Scientologist, a climate scientist, I was going to say. And he was the guy who came up with what's called the hockey stick graph, which shows that like there had been no warming in the earth ever. And then just, you know, in the industrial revolution, it just shot up and we're, we're all going to burn and die. And uh, Mark Stein has viewed that graph as a fraud. That is an allegation he has made. And it's one that Michael Mann sees as defamatory and he sued Mark Stein in 2012 only now is this case going to trial so the third week of the trial is going to be next week in Washington DC and this covers free speech it covers climate climate change and there, there's certainly a Canadian connection because the Canadian government under uh, Paul Martin I believe it was was using the the hockey stick graph to justify a lot of what it was doing when it was going into the Kyoto Accord. So uh, this has been an influential figure in Canada. So we're going to be covering that on the show. Uh, the show is going to look a little different next week just because of scheduling. We're still trying to fine tune that, but uh, we're going to have some interviews and there is going to be an Andrew Lawton show, but it won't be live. And we will have daily updates from the trial in Washington, D.C. So uh, stay tuned for that. We're also going to have on Monday Anne McElhenney and Phelan McAleer who have been covering this uh, to bring us all up to speed. And, and they're doing a, a fantastic project on this where they're doing daily reenactments with actors of key moments from the trial. And they, they've got phenomenal actors. I've been keeping up to date through that process and that podcast. So uh, that's something we'll have for you next week. I know people have been asking about it. So that is coming soon. Thank you to all of you. Have a wonderful weekend. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.